So Acts chapter 9, verse 26. It says this, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. And if you remember from last week, we had talked about Saul and how he had immediately started preaching the gospel and how the Jews were trying to kill him and the Christians were rejecting him. He was in this middle ground, this no man's land, and he was really alone and afraid. And so he's in Jerusalem now and all the apostles and Christians there are not believing that he is a true disciple, believing that you know this is some sort of a scheme or, or, or trick. And so they're... they're, they're they're moving away from him, but it says in verse 27, But Barnabas, he took a hold of him and he brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Those are Greek Jews. Uh, but they were attempting to put him to death. So those folks as well are now trying to put Saul to death. But when the brethren learned of it, now if you find, you see now the Christians are on his side. When the brethren had learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Go forward two chapters to chapter 11. Verse 21, there's basically revival happening in Antioch. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. This is in the city of Antioch. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith and considerable numbers was brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year... They met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. All right, amen. Those two passages, uh, from this foundation, I want to speak this message of making a disciple. And just to, to tap into, to look into this relationship that Barnabas had with Saul in his early Christian life. And so let me be clear from the beginning, and I wrote this on the, your, your, your sermon inserts, that the goal of Christian ministry and Christian living is not conversion. The goal of the gospel, of preaching, of evangelism, of mission, it is not conversion. It is not to go to a stranger and say, believe in Jesus, and that person believes in Jesus. All right, thank you. God bless you. See you later. That the heart that the center, the foundation of gospel-centered ministry is not converting people to Christ, but making disciples for Jesus. It is about an ongoing maturity in a person's life. It is about seeing a person from a new believer, a baby Christian, growing and learning the faith, being a part of a body of believers, learning to become a Christian leader, him or herself, through the years. And so I love how this message coincides with the launch of our house churches because the house church is really about that. It is about discipleship. It is about being connected with individuals, not just through faith conversion, but being involved in people's lives through their growth 
being connected to them through the years, ultimately into Christian leadership. And this is what we see in the life of Barnabas as he related with Saul. Now, some of you might have known this because I've actually preached on Barnabas before. Barnabas is a nickname, right? His true name, as given in Acts chapter 4, was Joseph. Joseph was his real name. And he was given this nickname through the years. And this name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Now, if you think about the nicknames that you've had, or if I think about the nicknames that I've had, some of them are not so flattering, right? Especially from childhood, whatever it is, right? You're called Chubbs or Chicken Wing or whatever it is. Whatever the, 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 because you ate 50 pieces of of KFC, you know, in high school, and all of a sudden the name, they called you Chicken Wing from there and it just stuck, right? Uh, Whatever it was. Now, uh, I have had certain nicknames that, whether it be my, my brother has given me or, or different fam, uh, family members or friends. But if you think about the nicknames that you have, they are either encapsulations of a long-going trend of character, your personality, or they're encapsulations of a dramatic event in your life. And it just stuck, right? And so these uh, nicknames don't form out of a vacuum. It's not just random name that somebody gives to you. It's, it's usually because it's connected to your character, personality, or a dramatic event in your life. And so for Barnabas, this nickname, Son of Encouragement, you know, you encourager you, right? That, that's because he's had a track record of encouraging the body of Christ. From Acts chapter 4, we see that he had a tract of land that he sold and he presented the proceeds to the apostles to be shared amongst the early believers. That he had a history of helping folks, of being an encourager, of being a person that comes alongside and supports you. That tells you, I'm here for you, pal. I'm I'm right here. Whatever you need, I want you to know that you can count on me. That I'm not living just for myself. I want to see you do well in your life. I want to see you win. And Barnabas was a person like that. And so this nickname is a beautiful nickname. Son of encouragement, right? And so Barnabas is, is, has this, this laser focus on Saul. He's in his crosshairs, right? He's, he's, he's picked him out and says, you know what? God has put it on my heart and I want to see you become a Christian leader. I'm going to be by your side. I'm going to do certain things. I'm going to be an encourager for you because I see God's calling in your life. Barnabas was a person that clearly saw this in the life of Saul. And from our two passages, Acts 9 and in Acts 11, I want to talk about the nature of making a disciple. The first aspect of discipleship that I'll talk about is that making a disciple is proactive. That it's not a, a passive thing. That when a person says, I will be a mentor in your life, a person that disciples you, it is not a passive action or decision. It is not something that just happens when we wait for this person to come to us. And making a disciple is an active action. It It is something where I intentionally go into a person's life in space. This is what we see Barnabas doing. Look at verse 27. Right of Acts chapter 9. Saul, as I mentioned, is in this no man's land. I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Uh, a Jew of Jews. He was, he was there in that place and th- he was persecuting the Christians. And then he has this encounter with Jesus and he is converted into Christianity. And now the, the group that he was a part of is trying to kill him. And the group that he's trying to go to wants nothing to do with him. And in this lonely space, we talked about this in depth last week, 
How horrible, how horrifying this is for an individual. And in this place we see Barnabas. All of the other Christians want nothing to do with him. They're afraid of him, and rightly so. He had a reputation. He carted people off to jail. He was a persecutor of the church. Everybody knew him. Saul of Tarsus, stay away from that guy. Don't cross his path. Don't let him utter your name from his tongue. And so all the, the leaders and apostles, they were like, ah, no, I, I'm not convinced. You better stay away. And here, but Barnabas. You see the action here? He takes a hold of him. You see the proactive nature of what he's doing? He takes a hold of him, and he brought him. And so Saul doesn't even have the courage to go to the room where these Christian leaders are gathered. Knowing that, that he has no authority in the early church, he's got no clout, he's got not the name or the recognition. Everyone's afraid of him. They don't want him to be this, this top Christian dog now in the Christian leadership circles. And so he stays off, and in this space, Barnabas hears of it. Saul is being rejected by the Christian leaders. And so what does he do? He doesn't just, okay, you know, figure it out yourself, all right? All right, let me know how it goes. He approaches Saul, and he, he takes him, and he brings him by the hand to the Christian leaders. If that's not proactive, I don't know what is, right? I mean, what a difficult situation this is, right? If you were Barnabas, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that most people would just let Saul fend for himself. This would be the perfect scenario for that ABC show, What Would You Do? You know, right? You know that show, right? With Quinones, right? It's like these random kind of dilemma situations. You don't like, and it just happens. It's really like an outright outrageous thing that's happening in public and there's these hidden cameras and actors that are doing this, right? And the premise of the show is, if you were a bystander, what would you do? If you saw this happening in front of you, would you intervene or would you stay on the sidelines? Now, of course, there's a lot of uh, shots that, get, uh, that don't make the show and they're on the cutting, uh, editing floor, of course, right? And what we know from the show is that there are a number of folks that intervene, and there are a number of folks that don't intervene, right? But of course, they want to highlight the ones that do, because that's what makes the ratings for that particular show. But wouldn't it be a similar situation? You have a person that has threatened your life, and now seemingly is speaking a message that is different, and all of a sudden now wants to associate with you, but you're not yet convinced. There is nothing that says to you, I know you're a Christian and my life is safe in your hands. And in this space, everyone else, 99.9% of people are saying, no, don't come close. Let's not be friends. And in this space, Barnabas, the only one recorded for us, he does something different. He approaches the dangerous man. And he brings him. We find something amazing here about discipleship. Because if you think about it, when you think about being passive or, or active, it really is about two things. Do I help when something becomes apparent to me? Or do I help when I'm asked? 
When you help when you're asked, even though you're doing some action for them, that's actually a, a passive help. Because somebody had to reach out to you first to say, can you help me? Because we will travel life. We will go down the hall at work. We will enter the door uh, at home. We will go into spaces and we will see people in need. Whether it be they're struggling to carry something, whether they're in emotional distress. There are moments where it becomes apparent to us, I see you in need. You're struggling on your own. And in that moment, being proactive is talking about an individual going to a person and offering help, giving help, before anything was asked, when it became apparent. And this is what we see in Barnabas as he relates to Saul. That he sees a man struggling. And something in, inside of him convinced him that he was a believer. And so he goes to him, takes him, and he convinces the Christian leaders. And this brings me to the second thing about making a disciple, that making a disciple requires follow-through. Right, going all the way. I mean, isn't it all too common and easy for us to go part of the way? You know, it's when you uh, see somebody that is uh, clearly struggling with something, or maybe they had lost a loved one, or they lost their job, or they're sick, and something in their life is, is, is an, at a down point. And you've noticed that, and it's, it's common to, to take the first step and say, hey, man, I, I heard about this, or, you know, um, are you doing okay? Uh, just let me know how I can help. I'm praying for you. Isn't that such a, an easy response? And a natural, that's a good thing to do, to reach out and to say, you know what, I know your plight, I know your condition, and I want you to know that I'm here for you. That if you need me to pick up some food, pick up your kids, do something for you to help you, loan you some money, give you some money, encourage you, speak, I am here for you. And we let people who are in trouble or in need, we let them know of our awareness and we say, I'm here, I'm praying for you. But I bet you, nine times out of ten, maybe 99 times out of a hundred, the recipient of those words, they're tremendously thankful. When you are struggling, depressed or hurt or lost something of significance in your life and somebody reaches out to you like that, I heard, I know, I'm here, let me know. There is a mechanical response. Thanks so much. Will do. Period. And usually the person that is struggling and in need, there is something inside, whether it's a lack of courage or because you, you don't want to overstep boundaries or you're just not emotionally ready yet. You hear the words, I'm here, let me know what I can do to help. And you hear that, but there's something inside that just says, thank you, will do. And you don't go a step further than that. When there's actually something tangible that you know somebody can do, there is something inside of you that does not send the text. That you don't call and reach out and say, you know what, can you actually do this for me? And inside, the person really needs it, wants it, yearns for it. But there is uh, this wall and hurdle emotionally, spiritually, physically that is so difficult to get over. We're struggling. We're depressed. We're, we're lost. People are aware of our need. They've reached out to us. They've done the first step. They've tossed the ball in our court, so to speak, right? Now it's our turn to hit it back. 
and actually say something to them, request something of them. But I would say the majority of the time, the struggling person does not reach out that second step. So what does Barnabas do? We're talking about follow-through, right? Follow, Going all the way, not just saying, I, I hear you, I see you, I'm here for you. What we see in Barnabas is that he takes Saul by the hand and he brings him to the apostles and he doesn't say, all right, Saul, tell them your case. I brought you here, you know. Uh, I, I got you this far. Now go on, tell them. Tell them what you experienced. What we find in Barnabas is something different. It says that he brought him there and then he begins to passionately defend his case. And he begins to describe, hey, you know what? This guy, this is what he experienced in Damascus. I am willing to put my name on that. You can trust me in that. And he begins to defend his cause, his case. And he begins to describe everything that Saul had experienced in Damascus, what he had preached, who he preached to. And he goes that extra step. Not just bringing him to the place where he could be accepted, but then he goes and he puts his name on the line, defends the case, and he says... This really happened. That's a type of follow-through that is truly amazing. And that's, in discipleship, so important. That when we are encouraging an individual, when we are, when God has placed it on us to disciple folks, it requires something beyond the awareness and it requires an action that goes to the, to the end. This is what Barnabas does. The follow-through. You know, I, I think about Jesus. You know, he, Jesus didn't stop after three years of, of itinerant preaching ministry. He didn't stop after healing a couple of dozen or hundreds or thousands of individuals. He didn't stop after some last-minute instructions. He didn't stop after praying in the garden. He didn't stop. He went through the ridicule, the shame, the punishment. And and he finally uttered words, it is finished, while breathing his last breath. If that's not going to the end, I don't know what is in terms of making discipleship. It's not just about, I'm going to speak some good things to you. I'm going to give you food when you're hungry. I'm going to teach you that. I'm going to lead you there. I'm going to make the right connections for you. But it's an example of going all the way to the final exclamation of the cross. And even that wasn't the end. Because after dying, being resurrected, now he's at the right hand of the Father. And he's continually advocating for the beloved, for the church, the bride. When the accuser points his finger and he says, hey, look at that. You have an advocate in Christ who says, no, this is what I have done. And he goes right to the end in that. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from the great sermon on the mount, he says, you know what? If someone demands your shirt, give them your coat. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two. I want you to know that there's more that you can do and more all the way that you can go in somebody's life. But how easy is it to go half a mile when someone asks us to walk one with them? How easy is it just to, to say, hey man, if I give you the shirt, you've got to give it back. But Jesus seems to be preaching and modeling a very different type of living, of ministry, 
and discipleship. And Barnabas, he's a man that was proactive with his relationship with Saul. And his follow-through was impeccable. But the last thing that I want to point out when it comes to making a disciple is that making a disciple requires time. It takes time. This is what happens after chapter 9. The end of what we read in our passage was Saul was finally accepted because of Barnabas, right, into the Christian circles. And they were now convinced, okay, he's a true disciple. And it says that Saul was going about in the region, still speaking boldly in the name of Christ. Other people uh, found out about what he was doing, and they're trying to kill him now. And now the Christians rally around Saul, and they take him to Caesarea, to a coastal city right off the Mediterranean. And from there, he's sent off to Tarsus. Why Tarsus? Tarsus was his hometown. That's where he grew up. And so in this place of early Christian life, just a a baby Christian, passionate about preaching the gospel, the church comes around him and says, okay, your life is threatened here and we want to make sure you're safe, so you better head on back home. They send him off to Tarsus. And it says at the end of our chapter 9 passage that the church experienced such peace. The the, the church was being increased in this season, and an amazing fruit was happening in the church. Not just because of one man's conversion in ministry, but for everything that was just kind of compounding one against the other. And it's a great outcome, verse 31 in chapter 9, that this peace and this, this spread of the gospel, this building up of the church. And then, Chapter 9 and chapter 10, we see the ministry of Peter. And we see just countless multitudes of people coming to faith now in the different cities and regions. And there was a revival happening in Antioch. People were coming to Christ uh, just in in, in big numbers. And uh, this revival was happening and the word was spreading. Antioch, revival, Antioch, revival. And it went southward, all the way down the coast of the Mediterranean and inland. And it reached the ears of the leaders in Jerusalem and the apostles, James and John. And these people are hearing what's happening in Antioch. Like, wow, that's great. We better send somebody to teach them and make sure they're on the right path. And so they they think, who should we send? And ah, the first name that comes up, Barnabas. He's honest. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Let's send Barnabas. Great. Everybody agreed. Barnabas is dispatched. He goes to Antioch. And as soon as he gets there, he's like, whoa, Everything we heard is right. And he's beginning to witness all of the good things that are happening there. They're they're gathering, they're worshiping, they're praying. More and more people are coming to believe. And so he begins to speak to them. And it says in chapter 11, more people began to be believers. Now through the ministry of Barnabas. And you would think that Barnabas would just stay in Antioch, right? You would think that, wow, this is great. I'm the central leader here. I am, I am the leader of leaders in, in the Antioch church. And you would think that he would stay there. But he does something, in my mind, that is unnatural. He leaves Antioch. He leaves Antioch and he travels a little bit further north and he goes to Tarsus. Why Tarsus? Because that's where the church had sent him. Saul. And he looks for Saul. And he finds him, and again, he grabs him by the hand, whether by caravan or boat, he makes his way back to Antioch, 
And it says for an entire year they were teaching the church there. Together now. Can you see what's happening here? Can you see the the discipleship happening here? Can you see the the hands-on training that is happening here? Barnabas, seeing revival in Antioch, is not thinking how he can further solidify his leadership in this city. He's thinking this is the prime ground to train Saul. This is the place that he needs to be. I mean, how sure do you need to be of your leadership to do that? How humble, how others-centered must you be? Barnabas was such a man. that it wasn't about him maintaining center stage, headlining the marquee. It was about Saul. God has put him on my heart. I want him to become an effective Christian leader. And this is a place that he needs to be. And it takes time. How many years elapsed between him going to Tarsus and coming back with Barnabas to Antioch? I don't know. But what we do know is after that time elapsed for an entire year, Barnabas and Saul, they were there ministering the word, refining each other. Isn't that how discipleship works? Isn't that how we grew in our faith? That making disciples isn't about this huge, massive harvest from a branch of just all of these fruits. This is not discipleship. Discipleship is better pictured in actually the seed, not the fruit. Discipleship is better pictured when you put a seed in the ground and ultimately seeing this grow. That's the length of time, investment, and sacrifice that it takes. It's not just about cutting all of the fruit off every single fall in the harvest season and saying, ah, we've made disciples. That's the fruit of our our discipleship. While that is a further outcome of it, the discipleship is not just about the reproduction of fruit on one tree. It is the reproduction of trees by the planting of seeds. And we need to think about discipleship along those lines. That the fruit is not quick. That it takes time for a stem to break the surface. It takes time to cultivate the land and prune and water and do all of these things so that this ultimately does take shape and grow and firmly root itself in the ground. And once it does, you realize it's not done. You take the fruit and the seed and you plant it again. And you realize that discipleship is better pictured this way. This is also Christian discipleship. What it takes to make a baby Christian into a Christian leader is not an overnight, a one-week, one-month, one-year process. That there is a steady growth happening. And it begins to climb. It goes up and down, up and down. But through the proactive nature of my relationship, through the follow-through of making sure they know that I'm not here just in word, but I have been here, I am here, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And then the investment of consistency of time. And as this continues to go forward, what we find is that a tree takes root, a trunk grows thicker, branches multiply, and ultimately fruit hangs. But this is the process of many, many seasons, many, many interactions, many, many moments of sacrifice, heartache, hardship, joy, 
triumph. This is the picture that I hope we have from our house churches, from the discipleship that happens here at our church, that what we will find is that trees are firmly rooted, and years down the line we will see fruit hanging on those branches. But what we're really concerned about is making sure we have trees that are firmly planted. I begin to round this up. Praise team, you guys come back. You know, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, he wrote a considerable number of books in our New Testament, right? I mean, you think about the guy, Apostle Paul. He's like, man, up there with Abraham and Moses and David, right? If you think about people in the Bible that really made a difference. He's up there, right? He's up there. So many sermons every single week are are based on passages that he wrote. The New Testament church is different because of his ministry. I mean, you reach Gentiles. I mean, if you think if you're a non-Jew, your Christian life is a byproduct of the Apostle Paul. That great commission of going to the ends of the earth, the the commission of Jesus from Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Saul is central to all of that. How many Christian leaders were a result of his ministry? How many churches were born directly or indirectly because of what he did in the first two centuries? Right? How many churches were born in the first two centuries because of his ministry? And if you think of all of that fruit, everything that happened there, and you think about what Paul wrote about, I, in my mind, I see Barnabas all over it. I mean, I have a couple of passages for you, right? Romans 15, Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, not our good, his good, and to his edification. Galatians chapter 4, My children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. (laughs) This is not comfortable for me, but it's beneficial for you. And he saw the process here, the pain involved in making a disciple. The sacrifice. In Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a well-quoted verse in Scripture, right? But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. For who? For Him. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so this is a conundrum, a dilemma, right? If I'm going to live on, it's ministry, labor in Christ. If I'm to die, it's gain because I'm with Jesus. And this was his dilemma. Do I choose my good or your good? Do I choose what's better for me or better for you? And then the very next verse, 25, convinced of this, he says. It's actually a no-brainer. I'm convinced. I know that I'm going to remain. Why? I want to continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Do you see a person that learned a tremendous amount in his early ministry in Christian life from a person that modeled this type of living? And then one last verse towards the middle part of Philippians. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. I want to finish with one picture, and it's of discipleship. Discipleship is reproductive in nature. It reproduces itself. 
that when Barnabas reaches out to Saul with such consistency and sacrifice and he invests in his life, Saul becomes a discipler himself. And he begins to reach a larger number of people. But what we can be assured of is that Barnabas had his indirect hands all over the New Testament churches, all over those letters, all over the ministry life of, of Paul. This is the nature of what we involve ourselves in when we say yes to God, I want to disciple folks. And so be committed to two things, to be a part of the process of being discipled and ultimately you yourself growing in leadership, in faith, in stature, and becoming a disciple of Christ to impact the community, your family, your workspaces, all for the glory of God. Amen? Amen.